0: There's no dispute that the rigors and demands of law enforcement causes above average stress on those who wear a badge to protect and serve. Sadly, law enforcement officers continue to lose their lives to suicide or their careers due to maladaptive coping skills. The mental health of law enforcement officers is a high priority in many agencies throughout our state. And as you may have heard on past episodes, the North Carolina Justice Academy offers courses on coping with mental health resiliency. On this episode, it is indeed my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tina Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll is a highly experienced counselor and consultant for law enforcement, and is not only a rare but valuable resource due to her recognition of the frustrations in accessing mental health care specific to law enforcement. Hello, everyone. This is Kirk Puckett, and welcome to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm turning around. I was driving down Quentin, and i turning around at you. I'm to find him again. This is at Glover. Subject 1074 What's wrong? I you where? NCJA
1: 1014.
0: Dr. Jekyll, I want to welcome you. And as I said, it is indeed a pleasure because you are a rare breed. I've very, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone who focuses a lot of their practice specifically on law enforcement.
1: Thank you for the kind words because it's been such a blessing and honor to walk the journey with law enforcement all these years. So I really, truly appreciate you helping me get the message out.
0: Let's talk a little bit first about your background. Everybody likes to know the specifics of folks that we talk with from time to time. So, let's let's talk about uh, your background first and, and what brought you to where you are today.
1: Absolutely. So, I actually have a I have a mental health background. I'm I'm actually a licensed clinical social worker, and in I started out in the field of grief and bereavement, worked a few years in the hospice arena. Uh, and then move, started moving into crisis and trauma. And then in the year 2000, I decided to take a little deeper look at law enforcement and first responder issues. So I actually began this career doing volunteer work with a local rural county sheriff's office and going in and providing in-service training on mental health. And initially, I was only given about an hour. Now, you can imagine in the year 2000, uh it was not accepted at all at that point. Uh, So I I definitely took it on the chin, you know, for for probably five or six years before uh, the other agency started to say, hey, she might be on to something. And then I began to build over time uh, my career in which, uh, again, I'm very fortunate to now work with agencies all over the nation from federal to state to local uh, and specialize. So this, uh, I'm going on my 24th year doing this hoping to make it to 25. It's it's been stressful at times. It's been beautiful at times. It's been uh, complicated at times. So you can imagine uh, as as someone who's been, I've had the 30,000 foot view as well uh, in how law enforcement has changed over time, particularly as it relates to mental health.
0: Well, I'm pressed to ask this question. What was it that flipped the switch for you to make you want to kind of push open that door to work with law enforcement? Do you have a law enforcement background or have family or was it just something in your professional fiber that said, this is where I need to go?
1: You know, I think I, I, I think it was some of all of that. I, you know, I remember growing up as a ch- as a child in Central Florida and actually grew up on a dairy farm and uh, my dad had a very dear friend who was a Florida State Trooper and this gentleman would come by and it it's funny i i learned very early on about respect for for law enforcement so when i started to do this it i started to meet people and see firsthand uh what officers and deputies were really struggling with when it came to mental health issues and then from that you know it became a passion of mine and i and i felt very strongly uh, after about year seven or eight that, that it also became a calling for me to to provide this information because I still to this day feel very strongly that if we're asking folks, if they're, if they're stepping up to the plate and, and going to do this, this career and this job, that we ethically need to provide them with the resources and, and support that they need to continue to be healthy.
0: Well, it's interesting that you you touched on a point earlier in response to to my question. The words law enforcement and mental health really did not belong together for a long time. If they did, it was because a law enforcement officer was involved with an individual who had a mental health issue or was having a crisis or they were serving an involuntary commitment paper. But- In the last few years, it seems that the spotlight of mental health and how the job truly affects the mental health of law enforcement officers. And I certainly don't want to exclude detention officers and certainly telecommunicators who are all under this umbrella. And it just seems to me that it is a relief of sorts that there are folks like you who are willing to take a piece of their practice. And focus it on helping law enforcement and telecommunicators and detention officers, so I'm just going to get to this question and say, "What do you think is is maybe a minimum that an agency or a municipality should be investing in the mental health of its officers
1: well first of all, I agree with you completely that we can't we can't leave out those other uh, those other roles within law enforcement because uh you know we've done that traditionally for far too long, and it's just it's it's not a good thing. We have to make sure that we are have a have a whole room view so to speak about who is out there providing this and you know and and in my work uh I, I as I mentioned, I work with several agencies, but my primary agency is actually the Jacksonville sheriff's Office here in Jacksonville, Florida, and I am their their primary counselor, and I only work with police and corrections and so what what we've done here is built a a program and 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 this hopefully will address your question. You need to have at least someone at least one person or two depending on on the size of the agency who is number one uh, trained obviously as a mental health professional, licensed in the state they practice I'm licensed in Florida and Georgia, and also has and this is the most important thing they have the cultural competence. Uh, to work within the field of law enforcement, meaning you know they're out there doing ride alongs they're out there having lunch they're 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 going to events they're they're really standing back and learning all about the culture of law enforcement i don't necessarily i've never been a law enforcement officer um i don't have the intention of being a law enforcement officer I think I'm actually more objective because i'm not uh but it, it, someone who is willing as a resource they're willing to Uh, embed themselves, so to speak, within the culture itself. So, as a minimum, I believe that agencies need to provide for that type of person or persons. Now, here's the challenge. There's been so much reliance all of these years on this idea of an employee assistance program or EAP program. I am not in any way downing that type of program, but the challenges we continue to face from my perspective uh, as a a specialist in this field, is that it's very easy to hand an officer a a number, a 1-800 number, and say, we have EAP, go from there. And and there's always going to be a question of whether or not the clinician on the other end has any knowledge whatsoever, uh, again, or competency in understanding the issues that law enforcement face. I've had officers actually tell me they go and see See these folks, and they feel like they've traumatized the clinician with some of the the, the stories they share. Um, again, EAP is not a bad thing. We just have to figure out how do we how do we train more? How do we get these folks, um, you know, more available that really truly have the background that's needed?
0: Well, I'm certainly happy to share with you, as well as some of our listeners who may not know, this is a growing trend among law enforcement agencies in North Carolina where agencies are actually employing or contracting with clinical social workers who can serve as first responders in the event of mental health crisis calls. So um, I'm certainly pleased to put the spotlight on the Burlington Police Department. They have been a model for several years of having uh, clinicians actually in the car responding to those calls, helping officers to try and bring control under mental health crisis situations. And, and I certainly hope that it's going to be a growing trend in our state and, and throughout the nation. And I say all that to say this, that a lot of times when those clinicians are riding with those officers, it becomes more of a one-on-one discussion, if you will, with mm-hmm. that officer kind of, you know, peeling back some layers of their own mental health onion and it has proven to be a tremendous asset to agencies here in North Carolina. And and I don't want to get too far up into your weeds, but in doing a little research prior to our conversation, I ran across a couple of terms, trauma and vicarious trauma. And you mentioned the word trauma earlier, so let's talk a little bit about that and and if you would explain the difference between those two terms.
1: Absolutely. And 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 just to finish a thought if I may, When you were mentioning those, having those programs, absolutely, those programs are are amazing and they're making a difference when we have, when clinicians are pairing up with law enforcement officers, particularly as it relates to helping uh, the mental illness, helping those living with mental illness in the community. One of the things actually that's specific to North Carolina that I've been very fortunate to be involved with is a program out of Asheville called Responder Support Services. And they have a very unique program in which they take a clinician like myself and they actually embed them in an agency. And that person's not there necessarily to go out on crisis calls in the community. They are there specifically for officer mental health. So that's, and it's breaking down what we're seeing is it's breaking down that barrier of building trust. And we are really, truly seeing a big difference. I do a a significant amount of education. Uh, as the director of education and outreach for, for for responder support services, so we see we see this impact going on. So it is breaking down the walls when it comes to to building the trust between clinician and officer. As far as trauma goes, trauma is it, it's it's more about exposure. So if, if a if if an officer, law enforcement officer, went out to uh, a domestic violence situation and visually saw and experienced some level of trauma there, they are actually incorporating that event directly. And it could be whether it's something that has happened to them directly, or it's something they witness directly. So when we talk about trauma, we're talking about really more of a direct hit, so to speak. Vicarious trauma is a bit different. And this is where we see uh, dispatch communications really get impacted because people can be impacted by by vicarious trauma through hearing the story of trauma. So if they take a 911 call and there is a mother on the other end of the line whose baby is not breathing and they're screaming and they can feel that energy, they can actually be impacted just as seriously by vicarious trauma as they would by experiencing the event directly.
0: Well, you touched on this a little bit in in finishing out my thought, which thinks I need all the help I can get sometimes about EAP and about handing folks a number. So let's let's drill down on that just a little bit. If an officer, detention officer, telecommunicator, whomever, somewhere in the first responder umbrella needs mental health assistance, what resources should they be looking for and how do they get those best connected?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, here's here's what's been really, really neat for me is that, I again, I have the 30,000 foot view where I've seen this over 24 years. I've seen this field evolve. And when we first started, uh, uh, and there's kind of a handful of us out there who, who are the we're the old gray dogs, so to speak. Now that we didn't have those resources, we weren't able to go put our fingers on these resources. Fortunately, in the last ten to fifteen years, there's been a tremendous um, buildup or plethora of resources out there uh, now that that officers can be connected to. Obviously, you know, in a suicide situation, nine eight eight is very important. Um, Safe Call Now uh, does a great deal of work, and you know, I'm happy if you ever want to post anything on your on your website. I'm happy to send you resources. But literally, there is a plethora that somebody actually can sit down an officer and just put mental health resources in officers, and you're going to get so many, so many agencies out there now and organizations and nonprofits. So, you know, it gives me some peace of mind to know that when I leave the field, uh, there there are. So IACP puts out a list every year. Um, they put out a lot, a great deal of information. They do an officer wellness um, symposium every year. So it's just there's thousands upon thousands
0: out there. And I guess it's safe to say, and I'm going to go ahead and throw my own gender under the bus. We're the worst when it comes to ignoring things, no matter what it is. You know, a, a small pain in the back. Well, that'll work itself out, or it'll go away. Or whatever that pain may be, we have tendency to want to put it off rather than seeking help for it. And I guess it's safe to to say that particularly when it comes to mental health, that's really not something that is self-treated, is it?
1: I I agree. And I, you know, I, it, it brings to mind yesterday, I actually had a corrections officer come to see me. And for the first 20 minutes, uh, you know, it was, I don't know why I'm here. I'm not supposed to be talking about this. You know, it's and, and just, you know, you're the, the mindset that has been beaten into law enforcement and, and as you said, your own gender over time, that, it, that it's it's not okay to, to discuss these difficult issues. And I physically watched this man go from not wanting to say anything to the point of, by the end of it, he said, I have never felt better in my life. I feel like I just came in here and just put it all out there. And I said, that's, you know, that's exactly what's healthy so again yeah i mean the 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 stigma is still it does still exist. I believe these are top down programs I, my my best programs, particularly as it relates to peer support, are the ones in which the commanders and leaders stand up and say, "Hey, listen, we got you here we've got these resources. we're doing everything we can but it but it also starts at the beginning i i've been that's been my platform for many years. We have to start at the beginning not wait 10 15 years down the road for someone to get so completely burnt uh that they're willing to they're willing to walk away from a career that they actually like so you know again as a best practices model we've been very fortunate in Jacksonville Sheriff's office where I go in and I teach an 8 hour course on on mental health resiliency stress PTSD etc to all of the police and corrections recruits before they ever leave the academy, so the idea is not only do they get that information ahead of time, they also connect with me, so when they're out there, they have my number handy and are able to just go ahead and uh build the trust with me early and move forward and It's working I mean we're thrilled to say I've been with them five years uh and uh the other thing we've been able to do, and I think other agencies could take a you know could take a learning lesson from this is we have to do more for officers that have been in shootings. There's still a lot of stigma about, again, discussing how they feel, what they feel, what they're going through following a shooting. And unfortunately, shootings are up. Uh, we created a an officer-involved shooting peer team at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office about a year and a half ago, in which I have 25 peers that I I, I selected with the agency's assistance. And we I train them. I oversee them. So when a officer goes through a shooting, we pair them up with somebody who's also been through the same process, and they follow them uh, long-term and provide support. If they need more than peer support, they can always come see me. So I join in the journey with them. I do not replace their peer. uh, It's something that I just absolutely and incredibly blessed to be a part of.
0: Well, and Dr. Jekyll, that's such a valuable resource that a lot of people don't think about. It's, you know, we go to the call, we respond, we do what we need to do, we leave, we go to the next call. But every now and then, as you mentioned, shootings are up, officer-involved shootings are up. Just the things that cops see on a daily basis that kind of stick in the back of their minds, not only for the remainder of that shift, but maybe the remainder of that week or the rest of the month, Being able to, I guess to put this in a term because I'm not a clinician, the post-trauma events, to be able to sit down with people and talk that situation out, whatever it was that you saw or that you heard or whatever the event was that left a scar. I mean, again, how important is it just to sit down with someone and talk about that, but more specifically, someone like you?
1: Well, I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely instrumental in in their overall adjustment. Uh, It's also recognition that uh, a lot of what they are going through are normal reactions to an abnormal event. And even though we see more shootings, it still is not within the realm of everyday law enforcement work to go out and have to get involved in the use of deadly force. So it's absolutely imperative. And you know you can hear the passion in my voice about it because I think that we have to start again at the beginning. And part of what's working with this peer team at JSO is that we we assign that peer within the first 24 hours. And because the agency has policies now in which you know, transparency is a is a big important issue, and it should be with the community, they'll have them come in and watch the body worn camera footage within 48, 72 hours. So our peer actually goes. To that, they're not in the same room with them, but they are waiting for them outside of that. And we'll go take them to have a cup of coffee or lunch and check in with them. Uh, Because psychologically viewing these videos sometimes can be a bit shocking, you know, given the disconnect between what they felt on the scene versus what they're seeing in a video. But beyond that, then they they check in, they they go, they help them not prepare legally, but to, to support them when they get ready for the response to resistance board. Um, and in Jacksonville, you know, with with the way that it's set up, JSO is a huge agency or about the 25th largest agency in the nation with over 2,000 sworn on the street and 650 corrections. So it takes a while between the state attorney clearing these cases and then JSO doing what they call the Response to Resistance Board. So we could have a peer actually assigned to an officer for two years or more um, while this process goes long term. But the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that, that we provide in terms of support and education is the normalization of the fact that, you know, what they're feeling is, is normal, even though they're, they're, you know, the neuroscience behind the fight or flight responses is so challenging and it's difficult to understand. But, you know, we also reach out to the family, make sure the family's okay because they don't understand necessarily what their loved one is going through.
0: Well, I'm going to brag on North Carolina one more time. There is a trauma response unit that is made up entirely of volunteers. They are some retired guys. There are some still working in law enforcement and at a phone call, they will assemble themselves wherever it is that they are needed, and they will come and get in a conference room or gather at a church or wherever the best place is for them to be to sit down and do the kinds of things that you're talking about and Again, what a tremendous asset that it is to our guys in north carolina we're We're about at the end of our time, so I want to kind of go down one more level to put things in perspective. I'm a data guy, and I think a lot of people are. Maybe underwhelmed sometimes by mental health events. And I just kind of want to know if you have, is there a figure of how many law enforcement officers are affected by mental health issues in, in whatever perspective you may have it in a monthly, a yearly or whatever factor there may be? Do you have a number that you can put to that?
1: Well, I have, a, I have an estimated number because the challenge, the challenge is, is there's a great deal of research available on law enforcement officers and mental health, but depending on the study is going to get you different numbers. I have found that, you know, I found a study recently that, that put it at 35% will have significant mental health issues, but I think the more striking number is the astronomical rate of possibility of suicide behavior. And you know we're still not on really on the front end of of, of get, catching that. You know the 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 population um, general population we have about forty eight thousand suicides a year in this in this country. Uh, but unfortunately, with law enforcement, we see sometimes three to four times greater risk for suicide behavior. And the numbers is still hard to track those numbers because certain agencies will not submit the the information um of course out of out of shame out of concern out of protection for family etc but i i i will say this and i'll leave you with this thought i'm optimistic at where we're going um again i've i've got i've had the bird bird's eye view over 24 years and we have come a long way it was not when i got into this field it was not ever a conversation anybody wanted to have and i actually remember having backwoods conversation, so to speak, in, in rooms, you know, where nobody even wanted to be seen near me for fear of being labeled, stigmatized, etc. So the fact that we're having this conversation today is is a big win.
0: And that is a great thought for us to depart with. Thank you so much for the time that you put into spending with us and and sharing your knowledge on the subject of law enforcement and mental health. Wonderful conversation. Thank you, sir. This podcast comes to you during a time in law enforcement when officer suicides are high. Officer-involved shootings and assaults are under intense media scrutiny, creating intense frustration and stress for cops on the street. This episode's guest, Dr. Tina Jekyll, is a special resource as a mental health professional dedicated to serving law enforcement, and it has indeed been an honor to use this platform to hear how she goes about the task of dealing with a variety of mental health-related issues. And we'll include contact information for Dr. Jekyll in our show notes that accompany this podcast if you'd like to make contact with her or if your agency is interested in contracting some of her services. and remember recognizing signs of mental illness or crisis are critical. To our listeners, please be vigilant to the signs of those who may be either in the beginning stages or at a full-blown mental health crisis. While you may not feel qualified to intervene, there are plenty of folks just like Dr. Tina Jekyll who are. But it begins with involvement. On behalf of the North Carolina Justice Academy, this is Kirk Puckett. Until next time, please stay safe. N C J 1014.